Welcome to Retro Fanfic Retrospective, the podcast where we dredge up old fanfiction and expose it to the cold, harsh light of 2020. My name is Amato, he, him, and with me are... Tori, they, them. Chris, any. And we are gathered here today to talk about something from our childhoods, which is, uh, it's not uncommon, I guess. A lot of things are from our childhoods. We had long childhoods. It's kind of what we talk about, right? Mostly. (laughs) Well, sometimes we do, like, older stuff. Old Star Trek, Alice in Wonderland, you know. Yeah, and we did do Avatar, which is from our adulthood, so. I guess even if things didn't originate in our childhoods, they're still a part of our childhoods, mostly. Yeah, that's true. And and speaking of, we're talking about Chippendale Rescue Rangers, which actually came out in 1989, the year I was born. But oh, yeah. for some reason, it was on air when we were young. Remind me, Chris, are you, you're the younger sibling? Yes. I didn't quite By remember. two years. Two years. So difference. yeah, this is from before I was born. All of this aired before I was born. <laughs> <laughs> but did you watch those Saturday morning cartoons and like Disney afternoon stuff? Oh, yeah. Kind yeah. Of that same I era? Yeah. saw this on occasion, if we're going to get into it. Um this wasn't one of the things that I followed, like, episode by episode, but it was definitely something that I, I caught, like, quite a few episodes of, individual episodes of. Oh, by the way, I, I guess we should mention, thanks again for coming on, Chris. Oh, uh, thank you. If people haven't heard previous episodes, Chris, you are Tori's younger sibling. Yes. And that is the, the relationship that we're alluding to here, new <laughs> listeners. The thing yes. is that, like Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers, we are fairly episodic. Yeah, fairly, as in, you know, we put out episodes, and they are about different <laughs> things. <laughs> Up until now, I'm planning to start a myth arc, guys. <laughs> uh, I think we're ready. Episode 102 is this. Uh, yeah, yep. it's about time. Uh, but yeah, Rescue Rangers. Rescue Rangers, I mean, for me, like, I watched all those Saturday morning cartoons, and I must have watched Disney Afternoon stuff. Maybe those also ran on Saturday mornings? I don't know. Maybe there were reruns. Um... But I've got to say, I only vaguely remembered it, really. Like, the thing I remembered most was Monterey Jack and his crippling cheese addiction. Like, that's like the one thing that just springs to mind. If I'm picturing a scene from Chippendale Rescue Rangers, it is Monterey Jack getting a whiff of cheese. And his mustache twists all the way up and his eyes turn into like yellow and green spirals or whatever. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that is certainly one of the more memorable things about that TV show. (laughs) especially with how often how frequently it interferes with the plot happening yeah um so chris and i went back and we watched several episodes of this i think chris watched more than i did but it's it's one of those shows that like it was really fun when we were kids and some of the episodes i really like like the soda cult one where they have to like diffuse this crazy cult that's all based on um a certain orange brand of cola uh, but it's, it's really like human uh, cultists or animal cultists. No, or they're what? they're rats or mice. Okay, like you, you most can't be things. Sure. <laughs> That's true. But a lot of the show is kind of based on gags. Um. Yeah, I would say that. Uh, it's certainly 
not for a lot of it at least strongly character driven no. there's a lot of scenarios that happen and those scenarios are sort of what drive the plot rather than the individual characters which yes again mostly get their like screen time in their particular thing that they do yeah <laughs> well it's interesting to hear that i didn't actually rewatch any rescue rangers i rewatched the opening sequence um and i re and i watched the ducktales segments featuring the rescue rangers from earlier this year which nice. is also cute. But new DuckTales, of course. But hearing it being pretty episodic, this show has a big following still. Like, it, it got a, a big fandom with a lot of momentum, both here and apparently in Russia. And so I kind of would have expected it to have a little bit... Well, I don't know. I don't know what the mystery juice is that unlocks a major fandom following. Uh, but... It seems like something very episodic sometimes doesn't get the same kind of like world building energy from fans. Or maybe it does because there's more more holes to fill in. I don't know. It's really interesting that you bring it up because one thing I was trying to figure out when we read this, actually, fan comic, our first fan comic, um, was these characters that show up the uh the bat and Tammy the squirrel each only had one episode but i read like um i forgot the bat's name but she had this Fox huge foxglove had this huge fan following just from that one episode so i guess people really latched on to these characters that appeared in it i don't know yeah i imagine for a lot of these characters um the people that watched it this was their first time sort of seeing that character archetype so it sort of cohered strongly in their brain because it, it, you know, the show relies very heavily on old sort of noir detective or adventure story tropes in its creation of these characters. Yeah. I'm sorry, what were you going to say? I was going to say something completely different, which is that oh, okay. in terms of characters who only appear a little being popular, the less a character appears, the cooler they are in a lot of situations. It's like... Mm -hmm. That's why Proto Man is cooler than Mega Man, not because his personality is better or like his powers or anything like that. It's just because he's so rare that when he shows up, you're like, oh, it's Proto Man, awesome. Hmm. I don't know. He has a pretty cool theme song. Uh, okay. No, so that right. really Actually, does Proto Man help. was a bad example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. His, his little whistling song is sweet. Well, having good theme song helps, but also in terms of Fox Live the Bat appearing in an episode in which you are a witch's familiar, but the witch is a cleaning lady who rides on a 70s style vacuum yes. <laughs> and stirs her potions with a mop in a mop bucket. Yeah. Cast spells with a toilet brush. Yep. <laughs> that was pretty, that was a pretty funny episode. Yeah. I mean, she's also sort of the like, in a way, a little bit the like femme fatale archetype, right. where she's sort of flirty at, with um, with, Dale. with Dale, yeah. <laughs> and that was what this author seized on as having someone to pair with Dale. Yeah, this is the kind of fanfic that takes a story or a source material that was very not concerned with continuity and just suddenly becomes concerned with all the continuity, and not in a bad way. I think it's pretty well done uh, for the most part. But I guess I should introduce it. What we're talking about here is Of Mice and Mayhem by Fish, written by Fish, drawn by Fish. It is a fan comic. It's a fan graphic novel that was released in 2003. And unusually for a fan work, 
the author dropped it all at once, like as a single work, uh, which might have been why it just blew away the Rescue Rangers fandom, apparently. Um, it, they, they have awards, the Rescue Rangers fandom, or they did for many years. There's the Golden Acorn Awards. When this came out in 2003, it won the record for a fan creation getting the most Golden Acorn Awards in one year, which I, I feel like I want to read out right here. Best online comic, best original costuming of a character, best portrait of a ranger, meaning like, you know, if a fan art could have won that, just like the best rendition of a ranger, in this case for Gadget. Best artwork, best use of a reoccurring series character for Gadget, best characterization of the rangers, best character interaction for Chip and Gadget, best original villain, best original male character, best mystery thriller, best romance, best drama, best action adventure, best story, best all-time artwork, best all-time fanfic. And then Was it that... continued to win awards for best all-time artwork and best all-time fanfic for the next several years. Were those all of the categories? Or... Uh, that no. was a lot. It's 16 awards. Apparently there were more categories than that. And I noticed also in 2007, it won a Golden Gadget Award, which is a Russian fandom award, for best fanfic by a foreign author. Hmm. So, like, it's well-regarded, I, you know, you could say. It's got a few fanfic sequels of its own, apparently uh, most prominently in Russian as well. I don't know why there's such a big Rescue Rangers fandom in Russia, but apparently there is. It's funny because the only Russian cartoon I've really seen is the Russian Winnie the Pooh, which has this crazy fast pacing, and it's really kind of bizarre. Like, uh, I don't know if all Russian cartoons are that bizarre-seeming, but um, I wonder if... I don't know, maybe American cartoons were kind of refreshing for their more plotting pacing or longer episode arcs. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if you can say... I don't know if you can speak to the pacing of American cartoons as a whole either, though. I like, know. You know, you've you got, like, X-Men the Animated Series and Batman the Animated Series coming out in, like, the same era, right? And the pacing yeah. is so starkly different between those two, mm. like, superhero-based cartoons. Yeah, but nothing is as rapid-fire as those Russian Winnie the Pooh episodes. <laughs> would you, I'll take uh, your word for it. elaborate? I would really like to I'll, hear about this. I'll honestly. show you later. I don't want to derail this too much. No, I'll show you later. But, if, yeah, if anybody has a... I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. The Russian Winnie the Pooh, it's, it's just... Um, it's a Russian version of Winnie the Pooh. I think it was done in the 80s. And it's just really rapid-fire dialogue. And the backgrounds are... I don't know, they're just like pen and ink with some kind of 70s coloring. And Winnie the Pooh just like moves quickly along the screen and travels through the episode and it just like fires off dialogue. There's no way to describe it. You just have to see it. <laughs> mm. I'll see if I can turn up a Russian Winnie the Pooh fanfic. That'd be cool. <laughs> That's pro probably not going to happen. Speaking of, though, we should do Winnie the Pooh at some point. Uh, yeah, it's just a matter of finding something good. Someone's got to have written some, you know, masterpiece Winnie the Pooh fanfic, right? Yeah. Certainly has the potential for it. <laughs> well, I imagine it would be similar to that, like, really sad Calvin and Hobbes fanfic. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be obvious, but I would hope that, you know, they'd go beyond that, too. All right, so I guess let's get into discussing the story, huh? Um, none of us are specifically Rescue Rangers fans. Like, 
you know, who would participate in a fandom, but we're all familiar with the series. We were all able to read this and understand everything that was going on, no problem, right? Yeah, yeah. it took me a little bit of rewatching to know who all of the side characters were, but yeah. <laughs> I just accepted that they were characters I didn't remember and moved on. I don't think I ever saw some of the episodes that contained, I don't know, say, Foxglove originally. Um, <laughs> but, or like the episode that contained Foxglove, or I might have yeah. not have even seen the episode that contained, what, Sparks? Is the, oh. the other mouse, the lab rat? Hmm. Yeah, I didn't watch that one right. either. Originally, but Sparky. I've gone back and Sparky, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about uh, the format. Again, it's a it's a fan comic, a fan graphic novel. It's like 200-odd pages. And I originally pointed you to a mirror at the Russian CDRR headquarters. That's Chippendale Rescue Rangers. But, and that's how the story was originally released. It's black and white, except for the title page. Um, but, oh, I, I guess it's not exactly black and white, right? It's like, um, what's the color in gray, here? Grayscale? Gray scale, but but it's also got like pink and blue, like it's got oh yeah, color mm. mostly. No, yeah, it's just grayscale with like boxes being pink and such. Uh, I I would have read that because that was the original format, but this mirror that I originally pointed you to, some of the pages just don't have any text on them. Like they got these empty word bubbles, and so you can track that down if you want. The link that I'm using is through the Of Mice and Mayhem article on rangerwiki.net. But I feel like I can't point us to that as the main link because it's just missing some dialogue. So there's also a colorized version, and it was colorized by, I think, a fan years later. And that's on DeviantArt, which has its own issues for, like, ease of navigation and such. But I um, think that's the copy I'm going to point us to because at least all the words are there. Interesting point of order here. Unfortunately, I've noted, I started reading through, I've sort of read part of both of them um, and all of the DeviantArt one, but some of the pages are missing out of oh, the dear. DeviantArt one. Okay. So while it is colorized and while it's perfectly understandable all the way through the story, occasionally some of the, you know side dialogue or some remark of some character will get left off because a page was missing. See, I didn't notice that because I referred to the deviant art after having read through the, the, the Russian hosted version to look at the pages that I hadn't been able to read before. Mm. <laughs> mm. Well, I read only the deviant art one just for ease and I didn't notice that. So that's good. Like it's still read as a story. Yeah. Hmm. I think they might have been sort of intentionally left out for pacing. I'm not Maybe. entirely sure. I don't know. They didn't want to color them? I don't know. Yeah, something <laughs> like that. They'd colored enough pages, for sure. Yeah, well, it is quite okay. good coloring, I would like to point out. <laughs> uh, well, I'll, I'll point to one of those copies at bit.ly slash rfrmayhem, and... If you want to seek out the other copy to see what you're missing, you can probably track it down. But those were the best sources that I could find online. And as for the story itself, we got a title page with like splashes of images from the rest of the story. Um, and I think it's a little bit busy looking, but it definitely, I feel like gets you a little bit hyped for like some sort of Rescue Rangers action adventure. Yeah, it's kind of evokes a lot of drama. Yeah. 
And then, and there's an author's note, and where he sort of like semi-apologizes for pushing Rescue Rangers, not, not exactly apologizes, but like pushing the series in a more adult direction than it was originally. But I would say the tone, tonally, other than like not being an episodic cartoon and being more preoccupied with romance, it, it, I don't think it's a stark departure from like the kind of, because it's still sort of like not noir, but like mystery action, you know, investigation sort of stuff going on. Yeah, I'd certainly agree that it maintains that quality, but you'll find that like the violence in the original is very cartoonish. Like if someone, oh, yeah. like a villain would die, they're instead, they're completely fine. Something ba else bad happens to them. Um, like, uh, Fat Cat gets dropped into a canning machine and ends up in a can <laughs> instead of yeah, being brutally yeah. murdered. <laughs> oh, yes. Right. <laughs> no, you're right. In this story, if Fat Cat fell into a canning machine, it would be blood everywhere, and everyone would look away, and you might not see it directly, but it would be pretty gruesome. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely, like, um, more of a dark tone in this, more of a realistic tone. Like, there's fewer gags, for sure. Um, but I do find that author's note kind of funny because the author kind of apologizes, like you said, Amato, but then kind of brings it back around and goes, I think you'll find that this is no more dark than like anything Disney's doing nowadays. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you're probably right. Like, it's just not the same tone as Rescue Rangers, which was, you know, aimed at small children on Saturday mornings. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so we open in media res, like the, the rangers are flying away from some kind of like failed or badly mission that that went badly and everyone's very distressed and if you're paying attention you'll notice that some characters who are not normally part of the team are there we're talking about squirrel and bat uh whatever their names are <laughs> tammy but and also, fox love right <laughs> but also that gadget's not there and then it makes the choice to back up because, you know, it's an, it is an in-media res, like, and then flashback thing. But then it sort of just walks through. It's like a post-series fanfic, right? And so it's telling, like, what's happened in the intervening time between the end of the show and the kind of era that this story is taking place in for the Rescue Rangers. Yeah, and the author did mention it had been, like, 14 years since Rescue Rangers came out. So I'm wondering if this is supposed to take place that long, like how long after this is supposed to take place. I did not get that impression. It's like long enough for Gadget to earn a doctorate, but not long enough for like people to have totally gone different directions in life. Right, right. There's still the Rescue Rangers, but now Tammy the Squirrel is the nurse, even though she was a teenager when she appeared in the original series. So it has been a few years, yeah. It's been a few years, yeah. Um... And Foxglove has joined, which, I mean, you know, sure, you'd be falling all over yourself to recruit someone with any kind of magical powers. There's not that many of them floating around, it seems. <laughs> and other than that, the team is kind of intact. And is there anything else you want to... Is there anything you two want to talk about specifically for, like, where the characters have been going in their lives? Uh, only just to say, I don't know if Foxglove really had anything going for her other than being, like, not like magically in the the series she was like a witch's familiar but in this she does like i don't know she can sense people's spirits and do like tarot readings crystal balls and auras and stuff 
which is pretty cute. I like, I kind of enjoy that they gave her something to do, you know? Oh yeah. Part and of she's the useful. Team. Yeah. In the story. I mean, yeah, Especially. Yeah. Follows in the story. On, sorry. <laughs> uh, and it follows on her character. Like it makes sense that that is what she would have as a skill set years later. <laughs> yeah. And it's also endearing. Tammy's endearing that it's part, she's part of the team too. Cause I really enjoyed that episode. It's like Tammy has a crush on Chip and then gets jealous of Gadget. And the person who resolves it is Gadget being like, oh, it's okay. Like, you know, don't, don't worry. We care about you. You're a part of the team. So it's cute that she gets to grow up and be part of the team. Oh, that's nice. And I mentioned Gadget's doctorate. It doesn't matter in the story, but I do enjoy that she does her entire schooling remotely through a human university. And like, they're, right. they're all very impressed with her. And, it, you know, the story comments, like, it would surprise them to know that their, you know, star pupil was a mouse. Because <laughs> how else do, yeah, that's the fun thing about Rescue Rangers is how they get, how they do things in their community. Right. And like, engage with the human community, not, not usually in that way specifically, but like, in whatever way the story requires. Like, you know, it, its resources are there for them, kind of, if they need certain sorts of things like that. Remote schooling. Yep. They just know how to do it. Yeah. And, and I find that that element sort of meshes pretty, like, in this specific scene, meshes pretty tonally with how it is in the TV show. That sort of tone might not be present in all of the rest <laughs> of this comic. No. Right. <laughs> Speaking of the tone of the comic, we're also introduced to what's going to be the major, like, non-action plot in this story, which is chip and gadget getting kind of closer emotionally and friendshipy and like uh you know romantically they're yeah. not like together at this point in the story but like clearly that's kind of what they're edging towards it sort of seems like what they explicitly or i think it's chips ref uh well no it's the narrator reflecting right? well but yeah. it is it is chip though because that's how yeah. segues into this flashback is like chip being like how did it all go wrong and he thought back to the previous years or whatever yeah it's in third person but then it talks about omniscient it talks about chip's thoughts and he says something along the lines of like they're pretty much dating right but he knows that gadget wants to have a family and he's a chipmunk and she's a mouse so it's not going anywhere basically <laughs> yeah i mean not to jump the gun but <laughs> that's one of the things in this story where, like, the author seems to be very concerned with sexual reproduction. I don't mean, I don't mean in terms of, like, the actual act of getting it on. I mean in that, <laughs> like, well, if you want to have kids, you got to be, you know, be able to, to have a biological child together, obviously. Like, I... I can't think of any other way anyone could possibly <laughs> raise children. I know. Like, it, uh, it feels like it's just a conceit, though, like a way to cause tension in their relationship. Yeah, it it does. It is. I, I know. It's just like you live in a multi-species community and society. Like, it's got to be on the table to raise children that you did not actually give birth to, right? <laughs> also, yeah. I wouldn't think... Also, at one point, Gadget has, like, you know, DNA scanning, you know, equipment. It's, like, there's also, like, artificial insemination, just throwing this out there. Like, it's just never even addressed that, like, there's any possible way that they could be together as a couple and have kids. 
I know. But, you know, I've seen this done so many times, honestly, like where it's like just, oh, yeah, there's a crush between species of anthropomorphic animals, but it never pans out because it's implied that they couldn't be together because they're not they can't reproduce. But the difference is that in this world, we are we have the science. Like, Gadget, yeah, at the very least, do. is super sciencey. Like, the other shows you see, it's like, oh, maybe they just wouldn't have that technology, sort of. Though, to be fair, like, adoption is still always on the table in a society of people that's, like, you know, they're people. They're sentient enough to, like, make that an option. Right. So, I mean, I get that the that's not the purpose of it in the story, but yeah, they have the society for adoption and they have the technology for insemination and it's just never even addressed. And so it's just like, oh, well, clearly we can't be together because species. Yeah, it, but that's and, only and, just from Chip's perspective too. Yeah, I would like to point out that this gets even sillier. Like the specific phrasing is that Chip was mindful that she may someday wish to fulfill her <laughs> life in maternal ways. And it's like, you could talk about this. Maybe you could have a goddamn right. conversation. Right. <laughs> like adults. No, that's a very good point, Chris. That's also true. It's just like an assumption. It turns out to be a correct assumption, too, which is, I don't know if that's even sillier. Whatever. It's a uh, bit silly. But it's but, sort but, of this fanfic walking the line between being an adult, uh, geared towards adults versus geared towards children. Like, there's some questions that are just like, okay, that's fine. We just accept that premise. <laughs> right. You just have to roll within this story. Um, and I, I do like their relationship otherwise. I like that one of the ways that they kind of get to spend time together is it says that Chip kind of learns to be her assistant, basically. And, and I kind of like that dynamic. That, like, he, he learns enough to, like, read her blueprints and, like, help her out in the lab. And, like, that's the way that they can kind of, that they spend time together when their relationship's developing. Yeah, it helps to have a little more character for Chip. I think we were talking about, Chris and I were talking about this before, that Chip and Dale don't seem to have a lot of, like, character. Their whole dynamic is that they argue with each other because they're brothers. And they don't um, get a lot of moments are, with others. <laughs> I, in my Rescue Rangers research, I learned that apparently they're not brothers. They're just friends, even though they should clearly be brothers. But they're brothers in... Like, I looked up Chip and Dale, and they were originally created as brothers, so now I'm confused. I don't, I don't think that's the case in Rescue Rangers canon. Oh. Huh. I wonder if there's a story there. Uh, well, I'm sure someone wrote it. <laughs> anyway, yeah, we should get to the main story here, because, like, after the sort of establishing, well, after the, like, in media res and the flashback establishing what they've been up to, basically they go, um, they go on a mission to go save some you know, lab animals from, what's his name, the regular protagonist, not regular protagonist, regular antagonist, uh, Dr. Gargamel, uh, what's his name? Nim something something. Nimnol. Nimnol, yeah. yeah Professor Nimnol. Nimnol. It um, sounds like, it sounds like it should be something else backwards, but it's not, it's just Lundman. <laughs> <laughs> and I, it, it goes badly, not because they do anything wrong, but because it's interrupted by, what is it, the FBI raiding? Yes. The, this yeah, doctor? it's an FBI oh, raid. I, I thought it was really funny because, like, he's a mad scientist. And I'm sure in the show there's no indication that, like, anyone else is particularly worried about what he's doing besides these small animals. But, like, suddenly other people are. And I, I just kind of like how it kind of ties the world a bit together more, where, like, oh, the government's very concerned about this guy. And you, you learn later on, like, 
in a follow-up scene that, like, they've got a whole room just about files about this one mad scientist and, like, the shit he's been up to. Makes sense. All this, like, case reports and documentation. (laughs) Yeah. It totally makes sense that, like, somebody who was doing these crazy experiments would be on their list. Though, to be fair, his I think his first experiment we saw in the show was trying to use static electricity from rubbing cats to create a shock <laughs> machine. So, uh... Right, uh, TV show did not always follow the second law of thermodynamics. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, and I think he also makes, like, killer robots and stuff, you know, it, it, it yeah. hangs together. And so the point is that, like, the FBI swoops in, and they take the animals that, you know, he's been experimenting on to, you know, as evidence or, like, whatever, like confiscating the things and gadget gets caught up in that because they use some kind of like gas and she doesn't make it out and so she's taken away not by dr nimnal but by the fbi yeah and they they have a funeral for her they assume she's dead well, no, not quite yet they wait dark, at right? first they like she'll, oh. at first they like she'll break out yeah oh, this okay. is one of the happen. differences between the deviant art version and the original non-colorized version is that they sort of skipped oh. over this scene. Oh, this whole scene? They, really? Yeah, yeah. From the point at which she gets taken to effectively the point at which they're having the funeral. Like right before oh, they well, the They still have the scene with the bat not finding her soul. And that's when they decide yeah. she's dead. Yes. But in between that, in the original, the translated Russian. Um, well, it, it's not translated Russian. Well, it is... It was originally right. English. It's just yes, hosted yes. on this Russian site. It's hosted site, on right? the, the Russian site. It's also translated into Russian on the same site. But, yes. you know, presumably the people who are listening to this podcast would want to read the English one. More <laughs> likely. <laughs> mm. But yeah, Anyways. so Tori, yeah, originally, at first they just wait a few days and like, she'll probably break out. She's extremely resourceful. And then she doesn't. And they kind of get worried and they raid the FBI files. And that's where you have the scene where there's just like this whole room about of like nimble files. And they eventually track it down and find out that, like, in closing out that case, the FBI reports, oh, and yeah, we destroyed the test subjects. And that's oh. when everybody freaks out because, like, it wasn't really on their radar. I mean, you know, they were getting worried, but, like, that's when they're like, oh, she's dead. She was destroyed. She was killed. Yeah, that's and a lot better than what just you know if you leave that out it's fine because you've got foxglove consulting her crystals and saying i can't find her soul anywhere in the universe she must be dead which is it's enough information but it does read abrupt so Mm -hmm. certainly on the other hand i'd like to point out that in skipping that scene you do skip over quite a few extra pages that are entirely narrated, entirely narrator boxes, which oh. is a big thing with the start of this comic, where you have yeah. like close to 40 pages, 30 pages, over 30 pages in which um, almost all of the text is in narration and not actually people talking. Yeah, it's not great because it's a very tell-don't-show some of the time. It's like, you're just info-dumping me. And later on in the story, there's a lot more dialogue, and it flows a lot better. And, like, you get more character moments by doing that, too. Yeah, I I think you probably lose a little bit in this DeviantArt version, but it's probably better for the pacing, because even without those extra pages, it's a, it's very dense narration. And, oh, you know, at a certain point, you're just like, I, I get what's happening just by looking at the pictures, you guys. <laughs> Oh, here's my favorite character moment in that part that you didn't get to read then, Tori. Not character moment might be putting it strongly. But hmm. after the the badly 
the bad first mission and like everyone barely escapes and they're, some of them are knocked out by the gas. I like the line, it took Monty 12 hours to come around again, and only then with the assistance of a Swiss groove, groovier, how do you pronounce that? <laughs> yeah, and it's a picture yeah, of, yeah. of their nurse like holding a piece of cheese up in front of his nose, nose like it's smelling salts and it's great. Uh, And that's the tie back to the Rescue Rangers that makes this comic kind of work, right? Because it's kind of heavy, but they throw those moments in. They do. Uh, But anyway, when they find out, like they do that raid on the FBI files and find out that apparently Gadget was killed, they even find her, um, like her jumpsuit that she always wore, which is still in a little bag as an exhibit. And then it's a whole bunch of people mourning and the story i was about to say fanfic but i fan comic technically right the story spends some time on that and how sad it is for everybody individually and their community and you know chip specifically and all that kind of stuff yeah there's some pretty there's a couple pages of just chip lying Naked in bed, you know, naked as a, as a chipmunk, but without his jacket, which looks naked to me, and just like mourning her and remembering all the times they were together. And it's really sad. Yeah. And this is actually a point in the story where like the page where he's remembering her only has a couple at like two, well, one line of dialogue split into two boxes. And that's where it starts to show instead of tell. And I feel like it's way more effective than what it was doing before. There's also, I feel like, good, the grief is well handled, both in the ways that people feel terrible and the ways that they kind of have to keep going. And so one of the things is, like, they they decide to keep doing the Rescue Rangers. Like, even Chip is, like, kind of like, well, you know, we still need to keep doing this. He also, like, you know, plays piano in a, in a nightclub or something, you know, plays the blues or stuff. Apparently, Chip, wait, Chip plays the piano and Dale plays, like, a standing cello or something i don't know what is that an no, he's using his hand. an upright bass an upright i can't tell bass. what that was i don't have that page but i know what you're talking about <laughs> yeah. um, they're playing in a jazz club <laughs> right there's that kind of thing but there's also like the keeping the rescue rangers going and so they recruit another one-off character to be their new tech person and it's his sparky i don't remember him at all he's he's a mouse i guess so but I like that it, showed but up I also like that it specifies that like he's not gadget, he's not the equivalent to gadget. And so like he's perfectly able to maintain her machines and work off her blueprints, but he's not an inventor like she was. And so he's just kind of like using her lab and and keeping things going, but it's not like a replacement and it doesn't feel like a replacement to anybody and he also still kind of implicitly is like feeling that he's the pitch hitter there because they lost the person who, you know, was supposed to be there. They they leave her room alone too, like her own room, and just kind of use it as a meeting space or a place for quiet reflection. Yeah, and it's actually, one thing with Sparky I'll mention is the comic does a good job each time they bring in a character who was I guess all almost all the characters except the actual Rescue Rangers were one-off characters from the show. So that's how the show kind of functioned. They introduced this whole thing is that because he was experimented on, I guess he gives people like electric shocks when he touches them. And that also there's this line where like the quirky and amenable absent-minded professor seems to partially fill a void as well. And the image is 
a plunger on top of Monty's head and the fly and Sparky laughing at him. And I feel like that was really well done to kind of show the character being kind of a jokester and uh, the electric shock thing. It's like all you need to know about the character is there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's also, of course, a reference back to how Gadget's inventions also sort of went wrong at right, the time. Right. So in his maintenance of them, he's sort of the same thing happens. The same thing happens. The plungers, <laughs> especially, they're always using. I don't know how they get plungers that tiny are this plungers, small. Yes. <laughs> they're always using <laughs> tiny plungers in Rescue Rangers. I mean, the same place they get their tiny couches and tiny clothes and you know <laughs> tiny lamps and like there's yeah. got to be some little chipmunk factories or something. I don't know. That's probably true, yeah. Raiding dollhouse miniature furniture from people who, like, construct tiny little seams and houses. With tiny little plungers. (laughs) Working plungers. (laughs) Yes. Um, And I feel like this is, yeah, like we said, this is where there's a lot more dialogue going on. Like, after this page, once we get through kind of the main morning and get on to the next plot point which is Sparky reporting that, like, basically um, the lab where he was experimented on or whatever um, has been approached by a government-sponsored chemical company in search of rodentia with above-average intelligence, like someone seeking out exceptionally smart rodents for some purpose. And, you know, they don't really know the details, but they don't really care because all they're really interested in is, oh, there's people that we can go free from this. Did that remind you of the secret of Nim at all? Because it really, the, like, the above average intelligence, it felt like a line from Secret of Nim or Rats of Nim. Yeah. I mean, we could easily have a crossover here for sure. Yeah. It's pretty close. We have also borrowed <laughs> a lot of spy fiction later on that we haven't quite gotten to it yet. Borrowed a lot of spy fiction elements. We could call it a crossover with any number of other spy fiction novels or mm-hmm. movies. <laughs> True. Oh, it's in no way a good match, but what I suddenly wanted when thinking about this uh, cartoon is a crossover between Chippendale Rescue Rangers and Power Rangers Lightspeed Rescue. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I don't know how that would go down, but I'm trying to just envision like the Power Rangers like crouching down to talk to the Rescue Rangers. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I think it would be good. They'd invent some sort of contraption to fight the giant monsters. <laughs> oh, there you go. They're like, instead of growing, we're going to shrink. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or I could imagine something going wrong with the Megazord and it being like a really small problem in like tightly packed wires. Oh, yeah. yeah. Gadget needs to go in and fix. <laughs> it could work. I think we were on there's, there's potential here. <laughs> not the best match because Lightspeed Rescue was the one with like a government military organization fighting demons. And oh, there's yeah, really well. like no no overlap. <laughs> 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 Thematically. Anyway, uh, the point is we get some good like, you know, investigative action shenanigans where like, you know, they, they, they make plans. It's a lot of dialogue about like how they're going to approach this. And I like how they kind of the plot they come on is like they send a fake response back to this organization being like, yeah, we have some smart rodents. Like, we'll totally sell them to you. And then they just put some of their team in a carrier and like send them off to infiltrate. And of course, they're perfectly able to break out and they like store tools. And like, it's very clever. 
I liked the plan. Yeah. And I should also point out that now that we're getting into the dialogue, it does sound a decent bit like dialogue in the show would sound. You know, you have Monterey Jack chiming in with some, you know, reference to, uh, sort of the, the like, gently like, in this particular scene. He says, the old Trojan horse, count me in, mate. You know, like that mm-hmm. sort of thing is, uh, very much in line with the original show. Yeah. <clears throat> And they also they... try to do uh, Monterey Jack's dialect written out phonetically, yeah, which I was not a big of fan of. Australian, di- uh, Australian dialect there. Um, On that same page you're looking at, he spells, you know, Rescue Rangers, the way Monterey Jack says it, is written out R-E-S-C-U-E, rescue, Rangers, R-A-Y-N-J-A-H-S. And it was a little bit much. <laughs> yeah it's i've been bouncing back and forth on whether i i thought the phonetic spelling worked or not and i think when they do it right it works because it's you know it's just his dialogue and it's not that much dialogue and it's in a comic but when they do it like that i'm like you could have thought of a different way to sound that out right like there must be another way yeah that one's a little bit uh of a stretch but, I mean, I don't know. I read enough comics that have phonetic dialogue interspersed into them that it reads pretty naturally to me, so I didn't notice it Also, too much. he barely mm. says anything this whole story, so it's not that big a deal. Fair Yeah, point. that was kind of where I was going with that. It's not that much dialogue. <laughs> um, but, yeah, they're infiltrating the this operation, but they're, they're not doing it because of any reason other than, like, this tip, right? Yeah. It's just like, well, let's get back to rescuing people. Uh, you know, yeah. rodent people. Yep, that's what they do. And when they and get there, <laughs> right? And of course, they've got like the rest of the team in a in the little in one of their planes. I think they have several um, as backup. You know, outside the building and that sort of thing. And Chip and Dale are the ones who are the Trojan horse. You know, in the thing. And we get to see our first glimpse of like the human kind of scientist responsible for this project. He's going to be present throughout this whole story, but whatever. He's like a, you know profit-minded, unscrupulous scientist person who's not, you know, not quite a mad scientist. He's more like a Bond villain scientist or whatever, right? He's not that interesting. I don't remember his name. I don't care. Yeah, you know, this is kind of the first time we, well, other than Nimnal, who's um, a creation of the show, we get to see how this artist draws humans. And what I do appreciate is they have a talent in simplifying faces where like when they're close up, they add more detail when they're farther away, they simplify them down really to the basics. And I love that they do that because it helps it mesh in with the kind of cartoony, very cartoony style of rescue rangers. Well, while still being able to create extremely distinct faces, like this scientist guy, I don't care about him, but like he's got a specific face like, and head shape and, you know, everything. Um, he doesn't look like other humans. It should be noted that the humans in this story would look very weird put next to the humans of the original show. But <laughs> considering that only Nimnal shows up in the one scene earlier yeah. and not alongside any of these people, not really alongside any of these people, it's sort of, uh, like... Th- it blends well because they still look correct alongside the anthropomorphic animals. Right. 
And what work, what I think works well is one thing, if we're talking about the art, this artist uses a lot of just sharp lines and angles, very straight lines in their backgrounds, and then hatching, a lot of hatching for their shading. So it's interesting to kind of juxtapose Disney's very like fluid cartooning style with the, the sharpness of all of these lines that the artist uses. And I think having humans that are definitely cartoon figures, but not in the very goofy style of Disney in a sort of harsher style is a way to kind of tie those shapes together. Hmm. And actually, now, there's a really great panel when um, they're helping, they find the lab mice and they're helping them escape. And there's a really great panel where they're all white silhouettes leaping onto the side of the plane off the edge of the building. And it's really oh, cool yeah. looking. <laughs> it's neat. There's some pretty cool shots, actually. Um, a lot of times, it's not always like ambitious, cool cinematic shots, but like it is enough that like you get a good interest, visual interest in reading. Yeah, yeah. I, this person's pretty talented in cartooning and there are some things I want to say about that, but I'll get to them later. I think one thing is uh, it's hard to describe visuals in a podcast, but I will give them <laughs> praise for a lot of these kind of like the dynamic cinematography they explore, especially in these action scenes. Yeah, yeah. we get into an action scene here because just by accident, uh, they accidentally break the balloon on the ship and noise starts happening as they're, you know, evacuating all the mice there. Well, they, and, you know, one of the small mice uh, decides to try opening the door, that, or opening the window that they've cut a hole in, not realizing that the window is alarmed. And that's sort of what triggers all of this to go off. But yeah, the balloon pops accidentally in the There's a big fricus. hurry. Yeah. The blow-by-blow is not too important, except that, sure. like, the humans are alerted and, like, it becomes a tense action sequence for, like, whether everybody's going to be able to escape. And also that they, f- like, Chip is hiding, like, back in the room at first down the drains and stuff, and here's, here's them talking specifically about the map, which appears to be, like, another, another rodent that they're, like, experimenting on separately from the others. And he goes in to try to rescue them. Yeah. Um, and it's another kind of, like, dynamic, like, James Bond sneaking sequence. And then, oh, yeah, when does he, I was going to say he's, oh, yeah, there's, they're running from the dogs. Okay, sorry. Yeah, (laughs) I'm having a hard time finding it. It's, there's a lot of action happening, but, um, he finds the cage and it's really well done. He sees a silhouette of the mouse and who does it turn out to be? The only obvious logical yeah. choice. It's Gadget. It's Gadget. <laughs> and she's got a new character design because she's been shaved, apparently. Is that, yeah. is that what we're supposed to take? Yeah. Yes, yes. That's the hair on... explicitly later, but yeah, it certainly looks it in the scene. She's shown with a much... Um, like paler um, tone and uh, certainly without like the tufts of fur and hair, certainly head and, hair. And, that and yeah. just have her clothes either. <laughs> and that's one of the like 23 awards that this, you know, story one was for like best costume, right? Of In this case of gadgets redesign for this point in the story and onward. And I'd say it's a pretty effective design in that it does a few things it immediately indicates to you that, like, shit has gone down with Gadget. She's been through some stuff. And it also, it's still recognizably, like, her shape of head and her shape of ears and stuff, so it doesn't look wrong. 
but it also gives her like a sleeker silhouette, especially without the clothes, that makes her into more of like a badass, super spy, black widow looking kind of character. Um, yeah. Or at least when it needs to be. Like it's it's an element of sexuality that Gadget's originally character design does not have. And, and there's this, oh, sorry, go on. I was going to say how much you're into that when we're talking about like literal rodents in this story might depend on the reader, but I think the design is very good. I think it is. And it it gets to do this cool thing where when Chip first sees her, she's, she explains later that she's been drugged pretty consistently, but she's kind of not talking clearly, just making sort of sounds. And she's this silhouette and she's not recognizably the silhouette of Gadget. She's a silhouette with eyes and looks a little menacing. But then Mm -hmm. in the next scene, you get her full face and her yelling chip. So even though her design is different, we see who it is. And the scene that follows that is pretty, like, intense. Like, Chip just, like, he yells, he leaps over, grabs a cord out of the socket. He rushes over with the cord and climbs up the cage and then just, like, it's so hard to describe this. It's visually done so well. There's and a, lot of, a lot of action lines. time on it, too. A yeah. lot of pages kind of oh, yes, drawing yeah. out this a, moment. A and full like, six it's... pages of no dialogue, just movement. Yeah. And expressions, reactions. <laughs> yeah, that's it, what they do well, is close-ups on the faces to show the reactions. Yeah, it's very dynamic. Well, the page layouts, it's, it's actually a very impressive sequence, yeah. Yeah. And you got some really, like, dynamic-looking low angles of like chip running to get the fire extinguisher off of the wall and it's yeah i i would give this props for being a very effectively done action scene yeah and then when he does bust the glass the there's just fragments that are all triangles like triangular shapes everywhere but the panel itself is tilted inside the page with speed lines around the panel so all of the angles are going diagonally it looks really cool um i think that there's a really good payoff to this action sequence too, because I think one of the things that this artist does very well is the posing of the characters. And you get like this very dramatic, um, chip hugging gadget scene at the very end of that. And it's, you know, saying, I, I found you gadget. And I thought that that, to me at least, that had very good emotional payout. Oh yeah. They even go as far as to put the lines on chips hands i guess showing how hard he's clutching her you know where the bones the tendons would stick out it's really yeah they they do good posing (laughs) but the rest of the team escapes outside and gadget and chip escape but separately because you know they they were totally separated from the rest of the group and um and we kind of get a moment of peace for them to catch up once they're outside of the lab and meanwhile, the I like that the humans have seen enough evidence that, like, did small chipmunks just come and, like, you know, bust out all of our lab, like, all, all of our experiments? Um, which, I don't know. I, I like that it's not just a total mystery. That, like, they find, a ti- they find Chip's tiny hat and that kind of thing. Yeah, there's a, a commentary about, you know, like, have we been pilfered by a gaggle of renegade toy soldiers? <laughs> you know, like they, they don't still don't know quite what's going on, but certainly they have a bunch of evidence of these like small machines and small clothes, mm-hmm. which is 
sort of what I was referencing earlier when we get like the tonal break and obviously the the use of gadget as a, a test subject. Um get a break from how the animals and human interaction is portrayed in the TV show. Cause certainly right. like at least some humans know that there are intelligent animals around and seem to have no particular problem with it. Right. Well, <laughs> this is more like a rats of Nim thing where the, the government finds out and they're like, Oh yeah, we've got to like, you know, they're already experimenting on the super intelligent mouse who is gadget. We find out. Mm-hmm. Right, Later. so they're ready right. to accept so. that there might be other small rodents doing stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the comments is, it's almost as if our experiments were backfiring. You know, imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we've been, throughout the fanfic, you've been getting enough information to piece together probably what they're doing, but I'm not going to worry about it until we get, like, the main info dump from Gadget, um, you know, towards, like, just in just a little bit. Yeah, pretty first much. We have, like, yeah. First we have some cool, like, you know, outdoor scenery, they escape outside, and we have some, like, um, catching up, slash flirtation, slash just character interaction, you know, stuff between Chip and Gadget going on for a while. Yeah. And she she comes to enough that she starts saying golly and stuff. You know, it, it starts sounding more like Gadget once the tranquilizers in her system start wearing off and stuff. Right. You have a kind of this tension of like, is Gadget okay? You know, because of how heavily she was sedated. And it's nice that like, yes, she's slowly coming to she's eating real food for the first time. There's kind of a lull in that tension as she gets to enjoy her peace. And then the info dump. Yeah. yeah. Well, you also, you know, we start to introduce humor and you can sort of tell that she's okay when she starts like participating in jokes and you get yeah. some of that sort of banter <laughs> that you have in the original series sort of used very effectively here because it is a break from what we have had in the scenes like directly leading up to it and certainly how Gadget had been acting in those scenes. Yeah, it helps yeah. soften the blow when Chip discovers that she has a surgical scar in the back of her head. Right. Yeah, well, she's the one who asks him to check for one like because yeah, she's starting going through thing, going through kind of possibilities or stuff about what's going on. And she says, yeah, they, maybe they implanted something in there because I don't feel like they've lobotomized me. And, you know, she's kind of just like working through logically some of these things. Um, and eventually, yeah, she she tells, you know, the story that basically like the they they were taken by this organization doing experiments, you know, for like enhancing rodent intelligence. And, you know, they were going through possible test subjects. She, is this where, at one point she, like, tries to, oh, yeah, first she escapes from destruction by indicating that she's super smart. And so then, like, you know, the, the rodents get passed over to, like, this this group doing unethical experiments with them. And she's kind of unable to hide from them that she's, in fact, exceptionally intelligent, even for a rodent in the Rescue Rangers universe. And that's why she was kind of singled out and, like, had all this other stuff done with her that other subjects did not. Yeah, it's it's actually kind of clever. The first way they escape destruction is Gadget gets everyone to spell no with their bodies. So the human mm-hmm. scientist is looking down and like, these mice are spelling the word no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they meet back up with other rescue rangers, like you fly their ship down and everybody's, there's a super happy reunion and all that kind of stuff. And then in trying to figure out what the what exactly happened to Gadget, I think this is where they have Foxglove 
um, hypnotize her, right? Yeah. Yes, that right. is indeed the scene that happens here. Right, because she can't remember everything clearly. And we get some pretty right. cool panels of the stuff that was going on while she was under. It's certainly not the subject matter, but the uh, the way that they're drawn are very uh, striking and dynamic with, you know, um, Gadget going back to being a silhouette, but with red eyes as, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the plot point here, which... I'm guessing a lot of the listeners have guessed at or have figured out already being right. that she was utilized as an assassin by the government um, yes. and sort of programmed. She was, <laughs> she was referred to as the map, which is short for Mouse Assassin Project. And the reader was probably able to piece this together before from news things that were in the background and what the humans have been saying about her and that kind of thing, that she's been developed as an assassin to deliver poison via needle as a mouse to world leaders who get on the wrong side of, you know, their sponsors who are pretty much the U.S. government. Um, yeah. And it's... she was successfully deployed to assassinate the leader of some fictional, like, Middle Eastern country, apparently. Whose name is Haddam. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. It well, was, it was 2003. Uh, yeah. I was kind of, uh, yes, yeah. It was interesting, like, they kind of do a whole political narrative about what an, you know, evil dictator he was, um, but how his son was good. So by assassinating him, the country would become good. It was a very uh, simplified thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, replace good with pliable to U.S. interests, and I'm sure we're all on the same page. Yeah, pretty but, much. Yeah, the, fi- the fanfic's not, not interested in dealing with the world government sociopolitics too much. But there is, of course, you know, a huge emotional reaction from Gadget once she remembers what's been going on here, that she's been used to kill people and, you know, successfully did so at least once. Yeah, and this is what, they don't do the politics super well, but they do this well because Chip says, well, you weren't in control of yourself, and even if you were, you actually did a good thing, but ultimately you weren't. But Gadget, of course, still has the moral conundrum of like, well, my body did these things. and But they... Yeah, it's interesting ahead. that given the things that have been set up in this story, they have metaphysics to fall back on because <laughs> they argue like, look, Foxglove looked for your soul and it was not present, you know, in this world when she looked for it. And she must have just looked for it when you were under, you know, the influence like of whatever hypno thing they've been doing here. So like literally your spirit was not involved in your body doing these things. Right. Gadget still feels a little bit bad, because who wouldn't, right? But that's right. some She still comfort. feels a lot bit bad. Yeah, a lot bad. <laughs> uh, but at least that's... It makes sense that she would, right? And that's some comfort. And it explains why the soul... They couldn't find her soul before, why they thought yes. she was dead. Yeah. Although it does yeah. raise some interesting metaphysics questions about how this world works. Right. <laughs> I was I was thinking that. I was like, where did her soul go? <laughs> well, they say something like that. We don't know where your soul was. It just wasn't here. Yeah. Right. Um, however, then we get into kind of the second act of the story because they realize that the way her thing functions is that she's just got she's just got one hypnotic suggestion in her. Like, that's it. It's just kill the leader. And that goes into effect every morning or something, like, at the same time. That's how they set it up. Yeah. And, <laughs> And they realize that, like, oh, yeah, 9 o'clock a.m. is when that happens. Kill the leader. 
And that's not a problem if they have her, you know, in a, like, in a cage or, like, sedated or whatever they normally did, or both. I think is what they, what the, the people who were using her did. But now it's about to happen again. So they tie her to a tree, like, at her insistence. It's a kind of a werewolf situation. Yeah, well, they think that she's going to kill Chip, which I don't know why they think that, because... Yeah, he's the leader. He's the leader, I guess, right. yeah. It's, it's but... like, how do you implant that suggestion? Right. Or what the exactly closest... specifically is the suggestion? It's whatever, like, might be whatever you perceive as the leader at the time, mm-hmm. how much context is factored in. They yeah, really they don't, don't know, they don't, so... They yeah. don't understand, and it turns <laughs> out it's a lot more specific than that, because, you know, it becomes 9 o'clock... She just slips out of the ropes that they tried tying her up, and not super well. She was just, like, tied to a tree, like, by the middle, like, you know. You could have done better than that, but I guess they were in a bit of a hurry. And they don't realize what an action hero badass she is, or action villain in this case, uh, because she just slips out, incapacitates everybody who gets in her way. And, yeah, there's the tension to be afraid for Chip. But instead, she just, like, knocks him out, steals the plane, takes off. Yeah, I like that, though. The way she slides out of the ropes is by turning sideways and, like, slipping through. And then she gets out of her handcuffs by pulling her, you know, her legs through the, you know, through around the back so her hands are in front. The author paid a lot of attention. The artist paid a lot of attention to these details, which I thought was cool. Yeah, ultimately ends up snapping the handcuffs on the rotor blades of the aircraft right yeah yeah they didn't leave anything out in terms of how that went down and so it's also effective in making her very intimidating because like she's bending her entire problem solving abilities towards this task of killing the leader she's not just like a mindless zombie here she's like you know a flexible problem solver but the fact that she does not kill chip and just steals the plane, they're like, oh shit, she's probably trying to kill the leader of the country that she's in. And that is indeed what she's trying to do. So now they have to go save the president. (laughs) 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 Are they bad enough chipmunks to save the president? Yes. Yeah, I mean, as it turns out, you could have guessed the at the start. Not a tragedy, as it turns out. Actually, Gadget kills the president. (laughs) Goes on to murder all of the other world leaders. (laughs) And a new world order starts with Gadget as the supreme mouse leader. <laughs> okay, no, that's not I how it goes. things could happen, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It leads into this extended, you know, final act action sequence, right? Or a series of action sequences, which I think is probably the strongest part of the fanfic because I feel like it's really well done, both in terms of keeping up... Um, keeping up interest and engagement and, you know, suspense... And they still sprinkle in humor, I feel like, in some effective ways. Um, they need a way to get to Washington, D.C., and they end up recruiting a local colony of bats. Foxglove goes as the intermediary. And it's a colony of bats who basically hang out in their cave and watch old Jimmy Stewart movies on an old TV that they have. And that's just random enough for me to find it charming. Right, because they enlist help by saying that George Bailey needs help. And then when the rats show up, they're like, they refer to Chip as George Bailey. And it's just really cute. Foxglove tells him, just roll with it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, Then they're like, they ask for a ride to DC and they're like, ah, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, eh? No problem. (laughs) Like if they'd ask to go to any other city, that might have been an issue. (laughs) Yeah. 
Also, during this part, we get a lot of the author's talent in drawing buildings and drawing cars. So I kind of like it's where you go. Oh, that's why they have so many straight lines drawn by a ruler. Like they do a lot of drawing really well done architecture, right? I mean, admittedly, they only draw a couple of cars in this, but they are really well drawn. Really well drawn. Um, when we get to Washington, the whole plot is centering around this peace ceremony, and it all ties together, right? Because it's like the new king of the country whose the new leader was killed, undisclosed right? Undisclosed leader name. Right. Is literally Come- called by his name the entire time rather than his position. Because uh, but- I guess the author didn't want to bother. <laughs> oh, yeah. Huh. Yeah, I guess. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't notice that, but I guess you're right, huh? Oh, wait, um, it says chairman. Chairman Jaquai. Oh, is it? Yeah, okay. But only once. (laughs) He's coming into Washington, D.C. for some kind of peace ceremony between the countries, and, like, the president's going to be there, too, and their daughters, their respective daughters who are about the same age, are going to release a peace dove. And that's, like, what all, all this kind of action and plotting centers around. And I feel like I mean, it's, it's hard to describe the blow-by-blow blow in this whole sequence, and we might just want to hit highlights. But I feel like one of the highlights is suddenly the author gets really good, I feel like, at introducing new characters who are fun and have a distinct personality really quickly. And so, for example, what I'm thinking of here are, um, are the daughter of the president, who is, she's like, I don't know, grade school age, but she's specifically a cheeky anti-authoritarian animal rights activist. Yeah, the first thing she says... It's slightly convenient <laughs> for the plot that she is, I yeah. to point out. But, um... Well, a lot of these things are convenient <laughs> for the plot, such as, like, this happens to be the day that they're releasing the peace dove, which makes it more tension. But you accept it because this is the sort of story it is, right? Right, right. Right, um... right. You... <laughs> It all it all serves the plot, but I feel like it, it engages you in the story. And also, when they meet the um, the peace dove, the peace dove is pesto from Good Feathers. I mean, like in personality, like, yeah. like the really aggressive one, uh, you know, from Animaniacs. Yep, definitely. Like, and it just it just adds a lot to the scene that it's like a very very strong personality introduced in order to, like, make things more dynamic instead of just like, oh, it's the peace dove. And we're going to do a thing, peace dove. Also, there's a... Like, these aren't really characters that show up, but there are hit rats that appear. Yes. And I... They are, like, the secret service, I guess. Oh, the, rats. the hit oh, no, rats No, they're are... uh, mercenary... The they're, hit rats these... are deployed by the people right. who are experimenting oh, right, on... Right. Yeah. Sorry. Right. <laughs> on Gadget in order to terminate her because they don't actually want her to kill the president though the evil you know scientist in charge is also like well if 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 he does kill the president then at least we can you know use that as another like demonstration of how good our services are for like selling off to other bidders which is weird because I thought they were the oh that's right they were working for the FBI but they're really like uh, they private yeah they're kind of a rogue agent yeah 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 so yeah I was confused about the hit rats at first too because I wasn't sure exactly where they were coming from but they you see they're coming from the pant leg of the guy who's working on the you know whatever their project is called the map project yes yeah. <laughs> um 
but yeah, long story short, it becomes a whole, you know, multiple twists action adventure sequence in the latter part of this fanfic. And I'm not sure how to talk about it. So do either of you want to start in on something? Hmm. Well, do you have any ideas? Well, I was going to say that we have a lot of uh, pretty well done. Like I mentioned before, the, the author pays attention to details in the body. So you've got a pretty funny scene of um, Monterey Jack fighting all of the hit rats at the same time and using a shovel and then swinging them around by their tails and throwing them into the air. Um, it's good. It, you've got bits and pieces that are really good, but I'm not sure how to walk through this whole thing. What do you think, Chris? Um, oh, I can I can lead off a little bit uh, in that I found it was funny that we, um, we start out the scene sort of with Stan Blather, who is their, like, stock... Yeah. character for being a news reporter, the very monotone news reporter for most things, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. introducing the scene and talking about the White House is another good tie-in tie to a character from the original series. <laughs> and... Um, I like... I like Murder Gadget's plan, which is replace the peace dove in the box and then leap out with, you know, a syringe full of some kind of poison to murder the president. And it just made me imagine that that literal thing happening on televised TV. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I'd call it a funny image, but it's like certainly an image. If that's, I mean, it actually gets even more chaotic than that because like up on the stage, like, you know, the hit rats show up and like the rescue rangers show up and it's like all these like suddenly this whirlwind of activity of like small rodents scurrying around the stage and there's no dove and like everybody's very confused. Yeah, I like that everyone does notice this happening. It's all kind of done from, of course, the perspective of the small animals. But, like, in the background, a couple times, like, everybody's on stage, like, uh, there's no dove. Oh, wait, what's happening with all these mice? Like, right. And we do get, like, one of the Secret Service agents covers for it and vamps a little bit. It's sort of like, yeah, clearly this is happening on broadcast TV and this is what someone would do. Right. Because <laughs> something has gone wrong. The president has to wrong. improv a dumb joke, you know, yeah. all that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, but what it comes down to in terms of the action sequence is that they successfully disable the chip in Gadget's head. So that's good. And then a actually, like, grown-ass human with, like, a tranquilizer gun, you know, comes in to murder Gadget, and, you know, the hit rats are, like, holding her still to do it. And... He, and Chip dives in front of her to protect her. Yeah, and, they like, <laughs> it's a little normal, you know, in this kind of thing. Yeah, but I mean, it wouldn't quite be Rescue Rangers if we weren't invoking some, you know, action, standard action tropes. Right. <laughs> it, it fits. I couldn't get, like, very surprised or, you know, invested in that plot twist, because I was like, yeah, okay, that, that just happened, of course. But what I do like is, you know, the the way it works down to very small plot details. Like, one of the things is that that tranquilizer dart, which has, you know, enough whatever in it to totally murder a, right. a small we, rodent. Right, we should know go, human-sized goes, tranquilizer darts. Yeah. The dart goes, like, would, the, the uh, needle of the dart goes entirely through Chip's body. Which is why it doesn't kill him. Exactly. <laughs> right. Because it doesn't actually get to eject its stuff into him. It, you know, he gets, like, some trace amounts or whatever. And then just, like, 
goes right through his body. Um, oh, I guess backing up, we also do get like a, a life flashing before her eyes um, gadget scene when the dart is coming towards her where she sees her mother. Yeah, I wanted to bring that up because I don't know. <laughs> I, I feel like we're fast forwarding a bit through a couple of things. Like, um, but it's all gadget, action, right? Right, but Gadget coming back to her senses is something that's probably worth noting in this whole sequence. Oh, that, that's uh-huh. what I meant by, by they disable Gadget's chip. Right. Um, yeah. Like that, that means like she's no longer like under those commands and like therefore is herself again. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't okay. clear on how they did that, but yeah, she does get a oh, moment um, of yeah, Sparky invents a device that mm. sends an electric shock through her and the fries the <laughs> chip is sort of what's presumed. Yeah, and then yeah, she's about to be hit, and she—I I don't know if this is true to the series at all, but apparently her parents died when she was little, but um, her mother when she was even younger than her when her father did. So it actually she... is specifically true to the series because apparently in what was intended to be kind of like the pilot movie. Um, her, she had just been living with her father, who was some kind of pilot, and then he died, and she was living by herself in like a junkyard or something, working with inventions before she joins the rescue rangers. Right. Yeah, that's what it seemed like. So she gets to have this memory of her mother, which is, I don't know. I think it's a good kind of pause to give a little backstory on Gadget, and like we've kind of been watching her run around like a murder machine and now we actually get to see her perspective and furthermore kind of like an intimate perspective on her and for some reason i don't know it just works for the pacing of the story because what happens right after that is chip jumps in front of the dart and i wanted to specifically talk about this because the panel of the dart coming at chip's body is or the page is really good like it's four panels and they look like as if like playing cards were being laid on top of each other but coming closer to the viewer and the final panel is actually angled as if there's perspective towards the viewer. And the dart comes in in each panel. And in the, the third one, you see Chip's arm, right? And then the fourth one, you see the entire back of his body. And the whole perspective is done as if it's behind Gadget's ears. So there's so much like dynamic motion and angles in it. And you still get this like perspective of Gadget seeing Chip about to sacrifice himself. Yeah, and I I know we're talking. I'm sorry for talking so much about a visual thing. It's just like that one, that page in particular. I was really impressed with. Yeah, it's it's really good. Um, you're right. It's hard to describe those things, but there's some sequences where yeah, it's just very well done comic storytelling. I feel like, and even the panel after that, you get like a half page panel of Chip actually getting hit and sort of blood going everywhere, but sort of a return to relatively ordinary paneling at that point um, where it's like reality hitting rather than the sort of, you get the impression that they're sort of doing the, the, the slow motion trope just done very effectively and in a very uniquely comic book style in the scenes leading up to that. (laughs) But then the page after that, the panels collapse again. Like you start off at the top of the page and I'm saying this is, it's really, really cool. You start off with the top of the page with like, the person who fired the, the dart gun being like, what the hell just happened? And then it kind of shifts over to Gadget fighting her way out and looking down at Chip and the shape of the panel starts to break, like deform from being mostly rectangular. And then she breaks out of panels at all. And there's, you know, the rest of the page is just one big splash of her kicking ass because I guess now that she's been trained to do these things, she's like a super cool, you know, action heroine also. Right. 
but it, you get but the impression, also... or at least I got the impression seeing that you get like the normal panels being sort of Gadget's shock, and then right. she goes into this state, like she goes back to the now I have something to do. Now the action is something that she's directing. And yeah. we get back into the action. The way that we do action is apparently these broken panels. Yeah. Well, I would almost say it's a little too much because you've got several elements going on on that page. And one is like panel boundary breaking with the gun in the first one and then the needle in the second. But what's cool is the panels that are not rectangular have Gadget going from being grabbed by the arm and crying and looking down to all of a sudden looking forward at the person who's grabbing her and looking angry as heck and like she's ready to punch them. And then the rest of the page, most of the page is taken up with her doing badassery, giving a big punch. So it works. Yeah, I admit the the gun breaking the panel is a little bit intruding on the rest of some of the panels and the rest of what's going on. Uh, probably not necessary, but I think that's a really minor gripe relative to the the way that the action is done in these scenes, which is, I would argue, very good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, it doesn't distract too much because it's just generally pretty good. And then you've got a pretty ridiculous action sequence where she takes down two or three humans, you know, by, like, stabbing one first with a dart and then, like, you know, there was that had hit some other rodent at some point earlier or whatever. And then, like, you know, it's all, like, slow down, like, panel by panel, people responding uh, to the craziness and insanity that's going on. But, like, she manages to fire another gun that's, like, on the floor at the right angle to hit a human. It's it's pretty cool if you just accept that, like, this is happening. Right. And then there's even a scene where she's doing uh, some math in her head to figure out, I guess, a calculation of how she's going to attack someone <laughs> get the shotgun shell i don't or tranquilizer dart i mean uh, yeah it's like the I angle <laughs> of something i guess yeah um, that's an angle i don't know <laughs> very more recent sherlock holmes movies right we like yeah, to see him yeah. work out math yeah. in his head because if you're really smart it means that you're a combat monster <laughs> look uh i think that this strobe has merit in real life <laughs> oh right no this was her calculation for one of my other other favorite panels and then after this i'm going to stop talking so much about the visuals but where she's firing the gun at the guy who's trying to shoot or shot chip you know and he's trying to shoot everyone and she has to do it by pulling putting her feet against the trigger and then using the you know the I don't know, the thing that's around the trigger as leverage trigger for the rest guard. of her body. Trigger guard for leverage for the rest of her body. And the coolestness of the panel is you have her close up on the gun on the top, and it's going in an upward angle. And then you've got um, the guy getting shot with the trajectory of the bullet going at an angle to kind of create a V-shape on the panel from the bottom. It's pretty neat. <laughs> Sorry, too much visual talk. I'm going to stop now. I mean, I appreciate hearing you describe it, though, because usually the extent of what I'm able to say is like, yeah, the visuals are good here. I liked them. They feel this way to me. And that's like (laughs) about as much detail as I can usually give. To be fair, it's probably (laughs) more worthwhile to talk that way when unless our audience is specifically looking at what I'm looking at. (laughs) Well, after, after Gadget dispatches like two grown-ass human men 
Uh, you get the scene where she goes and cradles, you know, she saves Chip because he was falling, whatever. Cradles his body, still has a big dart through it. She doesn't know if he's alive. She says she loves him and then he wakes up. And it's all exactly what you would expect. It's not badly done. It's just exactly what you would expect. Yeah, this is one thing I was... Uh, there's a lot that's really well done in this comic. I almost didn't expect it going in. But the one thing that kind of stays true to my expectation is the love story. Yeah. Um, which I guess isn't good or bad. I just think it's like, yeah, they love each other. We kind of got that from the start. Yeah, no. There's a lot of dramatic yeah. moments around their love. That's how I feel. The love story is very fine. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm just comparing it too much to the way that love was portrayed in the TV show where it was a thing that people bicker about um, in that it is a vast <laughs> improvement over that. <laughs> That's true. Fair yeah. And I think, you know, if you look at the show, like Chip and Gadget, were going to end up together, right? It's kind of implied. Um, I mean, if anyone was going to, I think, I guess. Yeah. If anyone was, yeah. <laughs> Um, but then we're kind of into denouement territory, I feel like, where basically everyone escapes except that Chip, who, you know, can't be moved, really, is scooped up by the animal lover, um, animal lover daughter of the president, who yep. insists that her mom, who is also the Surgeon General, apparently, um... Was mentioned briefly earlier. Like I said, a little bit of convenience in the way that yeah. these characters were set up. But at least they, yeah. when they mentioned that she's a Surgeon General, it was the line where the kid's like, hey, bub, that's not a lady, that's my mom, and she's the Surgeon General. Yeah. Which I thought was really <laughs> funny. Yeah. But, yeah, it all ties together, though, because she saw this chipmunk save... Like, here's the description when she's telling her mom. It's not fair. If he didn't startle me earlier, I might have gotten hurt by that big needle in the box, which is, as far as she knows, you know, was what was going on, right? And that gross rat could have bitten me. Come on, Mom. We owe it to him to at least try to save him. You're a doctor, Mom. You're the Surgeon General. And, you know, she has to bust out the police. But that's what happens, is that, like, he's taken to, like, a real hospital and given, you know, the best care that they can give a small chipmunk. And you get one more kind of wrapping up of plot threat action things where um, the, the rescue rangers sort of murder a guy. Right? Yeah. Um, um, so this is, I mean, it's not a big deal. Like <laughs> it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel super out of place in the story, but it's like, <laughs> They, they steal some security tapes or whatever that are going to, you know, bust this organization that was experimenting on, on Gadget. And also one of their, one of the people from that team is going to go, like, goes to the hospital to try to kill Chip to, like, wrap up loose ends. And also, like, maybe, I don't know, find Gadget, I forget. But, like, he goes into the room, but they've rigged up a dummy Fellowship of the Ring style when the Nazgul are trying to, like, stab the, the, the hobbits. Like, they rigged up a dummy and they, like, um, they switch the room numbers, so this guy's in the wrong room. And then also, the room was filled with, what is it, flour? Is that what they did? Like, he lights a cigarette or something and it explodes? I think it's implied that they just opened the, the oxygen. 
Yeah. But it opened the oxygen. That's what but certainly, flour. But certainly flour would the, do that, that you can cause an explosion with just flour. I think... Uh, it would be noticeable, <laughs> I think, more so than just oxygen. Yeah, I think the bag of flour was from when they were coating foxglove to make her look like the dove, oh, which yeah, is another all, thread they huge. wrapped up. They made that go off without a hitch. Foxglove played <laughs> the dove. Anyway... Yeah, it, it's not a big deal. I mean, at this point in the story, it's like it's wrapping up final plot threads. I like that the thing that they hide under the, the bedclothes is a little Pikachu doll. That's cute. Yeah. And you are you are definitely, as a reader, like, fuck this guy. But I'm pretty sure they did just murder a man. Like. And look, they just left the oxygen running in the room. <laughs> no one knew that he was going to light a, light a cigarette or light a pipe, even though he's a habitual smoker. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. To be what fair. I'm saying is there's plausible deniability here. <laughs> I mean, also, they're like mice and chipmunks, so. <laughs> right. Laws don't um, apply. <laughs> <laughs> no court would find them responsible because they're rodents. <laughs> um, and then you get, you know, the real, real falling action after all the action has ended is that Chip kind of becomes like the White House pet, like Socks the Cat was under Clinton. Um, for a while while he's, like, resting up. And, you know, Gadget goes and kind of settles back into her life a little bit, back at the what, the Rescue Rangers headquarters, whatever they call it. Um, and, you know, there's all these well-wishers coming to see her, and she, you know, tries to accommodate them, get what space she needs, and all that kind of thing. I like, I like the time that this segment spends in sort of Gadget's mental headspace. Like, you know, she receives therapy. It just kind of says from, like, someone who the Rescue Rangers trust to work through some of the shit that's gone down with her. Yeah, there's a nice, like, attention to detail to her mental health. I appreciated that. Yeah. It's like, the the story, the author was concerned with making sure that Gadget was okay, and not just by saying, and Gadget was okay. Right. And they, there's like a lot of falling action, actually. I, I, I think a big kind of cuteness of it is Gadget gets to miss Chip while he's away. But it's like, mm-hmm. you know, the it, uh, counterbalances, like the tragedy of the opening, which is like believing she's dead and gives her this like kind of sweet moment of missing Chip, knowing that he's okay and he's with the president. Mm-hmm. Right. You also have this sort of uh, in the same way that there's a juxtaposition of sort of Chip being a relatively happy character who's had something tragic happen to them, we have this sort of expecting something good to happen where Gadget's gone through some shit at this point. Right. So it's the expectations are, and the character's emotional states are flipped in that way. Yeah, and I, I think then there's just like one final thing to put a bow on, which is Chip and Gadget being together. Right. Well, the other thing is just that Chip does eventually, you know, recover and he, he jets and the, the daughter sees him do that, but she's like, uh, oh yeah, I guess you gotta go. Like, you know, you're a chipmunk because she's a cool animal person and it appeals to her that like, maybe I'll just say that I set him free and that'll like freak everybody out and like draw more animal rights attention. (laughs) Um, but then yeah, there's, like you said, there's the wrapping up of Chip and Gadget, which has the most specific callback to Rescue Rangers continuity that this story probably does at all. Which is that 
basically for, for reasons they are reminded of a specific episode where um, Nimnal made a teleporter and it switched their bodies around. So like different people had different heads on bodies that were not their own, apparently. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. Specifically, it was Dale and Gadget and Monty and Chip. And also the fly whose name I keep forgetting had his head Zipper. switched with the zipper and Nimnal had their head switched. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty great. Yeah, that's a, a pretty great episode. Yeah, um, they're watching they're watching CIA surveillance tapes they stole, which I'm not sure hangs together because if the CIA has video of the rescue rangers, I wouldn't that have come up before? Like that they know that there's running vigilantes around? I think it's implied that they sort of showed up, like maybe in the corner or around the sides of some of the images that okay. were in these videotapes. Yeah, the no CIA one was watching wasn't that closely. Right. Exactly, because and they yeah, never the do. Video, the, the recordings. There's like hundreds and hundreds of hours of surveillance tape that no one wants to scrub through. Seriously, I think <laughs> it's consistent with the show too that like they're always doing something in the corner, no one notices. <laughs> and so. An offhand comment by Sparky saying, like, it's a wonder all your genes didn't splice. Makes Gadget think, like, wait a moment. And she goes and tests her DNA real quick because she has DNA testing equipment in her lab, which is a little bit higher tech than I thought she was. Just slightly. I mean, but technically okay. it's in the medical lab, but, you know, still. Oh, in the medical lab, right. Because <laughs> um, they have and we have <laughs> Well, now they have a medical staff. Okay. Makes sense. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> and we have a plot convenient way to get our sexual reproduction genetically going on with our heterosexual romance which is of course the main point of any heterosexual romance of course yeah the essential component which is that when she reunites with chip she gets to share the news that because of the gene splicing um she's very specific about what it affected but i forget what what it was um Whatever, uh, Chip the Chipmunk can knock up Gadget the Mouse. It's fine now. Right, and they'll have Chipmunk-Mouse hybrid babies, I guess. Yeah, they're not completely sure about this. But it's because, you know, she switched... She swapped DNA with, like, a chipmunk. And he swapped DNA with a mouse, right? Uh, no. <laughs> right? No, oh, was, yeah. Mon Mon Jack. On... Yes, yes. No, because Monty's a mouse, yeah. right? Yeah. But I think it was just on Gadget's end that was relevant, but yeah. Okay. They yeah, specifically said something. Oh, I remember what it was. I was... They said because the female... It said only the female's DNA would be altered by this process, well, which doesn't make any sense. I think the but... reproductive genes, which I mean, like, okay, that's, that's an X chromosome thing, so sure. Yeah, whatever. It, it, yeah, it's not whatever. a big deal. Mm -hmm. and that's not the only thing they talk about either. I don't want to like. I don't want to stress. The fanfic is very concerned with this, but it's not the only thing the fanfic is concerned about. And so they have the whole like feelings conversation too. And like, it's all back and forth. It's extended. It's like starting communication they didn't have before. So like, you know, there's all that content going on also. Yeah, I also kind of felt like they wanted to be together either way was kind of the impression I got, but that this was yes. like, you know, the, the icing on the cake is now they have a family. Right. Honestly, we could probably cut out the, I don't know, maybe five pages that are devoted to figuring out that they're reproductively compatible and <laughs> have the story be equally well served, maybe better served. Yeah. By the <laughs> you know, I'm on the fence about this because... 
I don't like that that's an element of their romance that they have to be reproductively compatible, but I do think it adds another layer of tension and the resolution is kind of clever. They do do the love confession and the conversation (laughs) and that resolution of the relationship before Gadget shares the news. And so even though she knew, it's not like the basis by which Chip is making any decisions or anything like that. Like, it could have been worse. Right, and she also said that she loved Chip scenes prior to this before she realized that this was a thing. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You know, sort of, uh, you know, might have been dying sort of confession, but still, whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'd also like to comment on this whole sequence that Gadget does get to deliver the line, looks like I have two chips under my skin, huh? Yeah. Yeah, Because of the one implanted in her skull. (laughs) So, you know, that's good. Well, at least we're making jokes about it. (laughs) Yep, yep. (laughs) She's gotten to a good place with it, I guess. (laughs) Oh, man. And this, you know, I'm struggling with the setting because I do think it is entirely too much, like, romance stuff. If you weigh it against the rest of the fanfic, you just don't need this much at the end. (laughs) Yeah, it was starting to devolve into Lord of the Rings six different endings sort of thing. Right. (laughs) Six different ways for them to be together and also kiss. Like, there's several, there's like several dramatic kisses and it's like, it kind of takes, you're right, like Lord of the Rings style, it takes the weight off of the drama of the previous kiss or the next kiss even. You're just like... That they had the kiss, okay? Stop kissing. Right. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Partly it's just that, like, I specifically don't care about this ship. You know, I'm not, like, a Dale Gadget shipper. But it did just go on a little bit long, considering that it's the falling action resolution of the story. Right. And we, like you said, we hit we hit the main points earlier, it feels like. And also because I never felt like there was much tension between them because like it sort of seemed like they wanted to be together from the beginning and the only thing keeping them apart was Gadget being missing and then Chip being in Washington. So like you're kind of just like as soon as they're back together, they're back together. And I think that's where that whole like reproduction arc also doesn't work because like they never really implied that it was that big a barrier for either of them. Just like conceptually it could be or something. Yeah, that that was part of the weird thing, right? They didn't have the conversation about whether they're a couple before they had the conversation, before they, like, started worrying about whether they were able to reproduce. Right. But anyway, I think that's, unless I'm missing something, I think that's pretty much where it ends, right? Like, on that note. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it ends specifically with Gadget back at the wheel of the plane, crashing through trees. Um, And, you know, them, like, flying off into... The adventure of love, and probably also saving rodents, and that kind of thing. Yes, mostly saving rodents, but also (laughs) love. (laughs) Yes. You know what you do. And so... Oh, right, they're getting married. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Or, you know, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Chip... Dale finds a tiny mouse-sized ring to slip on her finger with, like, a tiny gem, like you do. Uh, I mean, evidently, it was gadgets from her mother it was mentioned oh think, yeah that's right like that. right they found one yes um presumably this culture makes tiny rings along with the tiny plungers of the tiny furniture yeah and the tiny I totally clothing. accept all that yeah yeah 
tiny glass, tiny champagne glasses when they're celebrating <laughs> Chip and Gadgemit's engagement. Also a tiny bottle of what is, I guess, not champagne because uh, flying right afterwards, but you know. Yeah, and in that scene in DC, they hire some <laughs> tiny buskers to play tiny music. On their tiny uh, musical instruments. And yep. yep. I mean, it's all very cute. It's, it is. The end. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know that I had as much of a negative reaction to it as you sort of, you two have sort of seemed to. I mean, I, I, I might, you might label me a hopeless romantic, but I thought that a lot of the scenes were cute. You're right. They were like terribly typical, but they were cute it, and they were well posed and there was some humor. It's <laughs> good. The dialogue is actually good. Like it doesn't drown itself in, you know, characterless, just like declarations of love. Like you said, there is a lot of banter and there's a lot of like exchange of ideas and, you know, kind of gets across who they are, I feel like, uh, together. Yes, and that is something that disappoints me with a, with a lot of romances and a lot of fiction is that people sort of have a romance and say perfectly typical things to one another, all romance, and you could basically substitute the characters for those lines with anyone. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And this story is a lot that, better than so that. It's a lot better. I do appreciate yeah. that. And yeah, it was it was more that like there wasn't much of a story in their love, not so much that the love was badly characterized because it's like you think about it and you're like, yeah, they're great together, but what happens when they have a fight? You know, like there's no and they don't I'm not saying the tension has to be a fight, but there just wasn't a lot of tension there, so I wasn't sure why so much time was spent on it. That being said, I agree. It was super cute. They're very cute together. And their romantic scenes are really well done. Like, they get to dance in the moonlight. They get to fly away together. Like, a lot of tropes done, but very in very pretty ways. Yes. But, like, it was nice to end on a pretty note. Yeah. Continues continues to be great (laughs) posing. But this time done for the sake of, like, you know, just, like, a very beautiful scene, basically. Yep. Gadget gets to look at Chip with bedroom eyes and say, oh, golly, Chip. You know. Yep. All the things that one would look for in a in a chip gadget fan comic <laughs> character. <laughs> there you go. Um, I do appreciate the frequency of gollies in this fanfic. I feel like it's just right. That is true. Like I said, the dialogue sort of I think it nails a pretty good um, characterization level where you do right. get witty banter from the characters. One thing that they they have dropped some of the annoying tropes, like Monterey Jack isn't constantly going after cheese. It's mentioned the once, and yeah, it's, it's like there for they, a good they acknowledge reason. it without needing <laughs> yeah. to be beholden to it. Yes, uh, Chip and Dale do not constantly bicker with one another. There are like a couple of instances where they have a disagreement, but it's mostly fairly reasonable. Then I again, feel like it, sorry, that go. Is, well, it, it comes across as like people who have been working together for like even longer than they were in the series. Yes. And so, like, at this point, when they're, like, they're kind of, they kind of play argue banter a little bit more than they, like, get upset at each other. Yes. And it's like, it's like, it's like they know this dynamic, like, you know, it's cute. Yeah. I, I agree with that. And certainly reads <laughs> a lot better than it did in the TV show. <laughs> yeah. I would say everyone's characterized, like, in the same way they are in the show without needing to give them some of the more silly or recurring annoying things of the show. So they did a good job with that. Well, let's actually back up a little bit because, you know, we're drifting into praise. And before that, we need to excoriate this author for daring to put anything so terrible on the internet. I mean, Hmm. we need to, like, talk about what we thought did not work very well in it. And I'll go first because there's something on my mind that has not come up in the 
smallest way so far. We've talked about how the visuals and the art can be really impressive. The lettering can be surprisingly clunky. Yeah, I for some reason assumed that the lettering was like the colorist's replacement, but then I went and looked back and I was like, nope. <laughs> no, it's just how it was released. And some of the time it's fine. And some of the time it's distinctly just, um, you know, like the broken or like kind of placed not very well in the, in the bubble. Yeah. I, also, I mean, the font that they've used has sort of terrible kerning, but you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> that, right. that sort of coheres with the rest of this. It's, um, it looks like some words effectively are blending together when they shouldn't be. Like the space between letters in a word is sometimes about as much as the space of letters between words. <laughs> right. The font I found okay. And even yeah. like the, the, the lettering issues that I'm talking about in terms of like the layout of the words, um, it, it wasn't enough to make me like really complain. It's more just like it's distracting because in so many ways, so much careful attention was paid to the art and the layout and such that it's kind of surprising. And now that I'm glancing back, I'm glancing back at this page by page, flipping back from the end, and I'm seeing a lot less of that later on than I remember there being earlier, earlier on. Um, so it might be that it's more of a problem early on in the story. One thing I wanted to comment on is that I think this was, you know, this artist gets better through the course, like their page layouts get more interesting. They mm -hmm. stop dumping. That's one of my criticisms, big blobs of text onto the page in terms of narration. And they're, um, they have a few issues with, uh, like some of the characters in the beginning where their eyes are really off place and that kind of goes away towards the end. So in general, it's like they kind of shaped themselves up into a pretty strong cartoonist. Well, you see that a lot for like people who write web comics or whatever, right? Exactly. Like, yeah. You just see their evolution where like once you're hammering out a comic, you know, every day or whatever, suddenly you start getting way better at it. Mm-hmm. For some reason. <laughs> uh, who knew the secret to being good at drawing was drawing a lot? And that would be why I'm not very good at drawing. <laughs> who can bother? Yeah, someone should have uh, told me that a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's just one complaint is that Early on, I feel like especially the lettering is distracting. And Tori, I, I agree that like it also has too many narrative blocks early on in the story also. In their defense, they did have a lot of ground to cover in this opening. And I suppose some amount of narration serves that rather than taking away from it. But yeah, it just it drags a bit. Well, I could easily imagine a version of this story where instead of text blocks describing what they've been up to over the years... You just kind of have someone moving through the the rescue rangers headquarters and like you know chatting with people like going about their day and you pick up some things like you know that that these different characters have joined the team and you pick up some things like the fact that dale and foxglove are like kind of sort of semi-dating or that you know see gadgets phd on the wall or whatever like um it, it could have been done differently certainly but in that you know there's there are prices to be paid. It could end up taking longer in terms of the number of pages, that sort of thing. I'm sure that there were give and takes that were considered in doing that. 
again, I don't think it was exactly the right decision, but yeah. there's, and, a, and only, there's a justification for it, I would argue. <laughs> and I would say the most distressing thing about it is just that it's so early in the story. And so it's a little bit harder to get into. Yeah, that was going to be my main criticism. You know, it's like visually having those big blocks of narrative text doesn't look very good. And they even go as far as to like try to get creative and overlap the some of the blocks and it just doesn't look very good to me. It does it takes up more space than it needs to. And basically what y'all were saying like they could have shown different ways that these characters had come to where they are rather than like use so much text to talk about it. But yeah, that's not an issue by the end of the story. It's just harder to get into. Like I almost didn't want to read it because of that, but it ends up being a really good story. All right. Well, uh, what other praise do we want to leave it with? I think we've praised the art plenty. And Tori, you were just talking about, you just said it's a good story. I think overall it's a, it's a very engaging story. And I like once it kind of gets its momentum going, it's, really fun to read and I think it's not usually predictable either or at least not in in kind of the details yeah I I sort of covered this before but like one thing that it does really well is uses it kind of uses the visuals in a very uh, like cinema I'm going to mess up this word like a very dynamic way that reminds you of like cinematography in a movie that shifts from romance to action to like every visual is done appropriately and helps create really strong pacing. And I think that's hard to pull off and like down to the the panel and page borders and the way those are used. Yeah. I mean, I certainly love a good action sequence, particularly one that's well posed where all the action is very readable. And this certainly has that as well. Um, and like I said earlier, good posing. Good posing basically a lot of, through a lot of it, extraordinarily so in some cases. Um, <laughs> it is certainly hard to draw two people hugging one another. Done very effectively several times in this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and different kinds of hugs too. Yes. <laughs> I know, and it's funny because when I started out, I wasn't sure how, like, I wasn't sure about their interpretation of the the cartoon uh, rodents, but they become super strong with those figures. Certainly good silhouettes, even when they're not just using pure silhouettes for effect. <laughs> yeah. All right. Is that all we have to say about Of Mice and Mayhem? Yeah. I mean, I I really did enjoy it, and I thought it was strong cartooning, so I recommend. Yeah, uh, likewise. Read very well. I mean, maybe I just really like a lot of the you know, action spy tropes that ended up going on in this. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I'm I'm down for something that's really tropey if it's executed very well. And this was certainly executed very well. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> it deserves its like 25 awards that it's won over the years. Um, and I'm glad that our first fan comic was a hit too. I was really happy. I was looking for something kind of Disney afternoon because, Tori, you said you've been rewatching a lot of it lately. Yeah. No, not specifically Rescue Rangers. Um and, I don't know, I just stumbled on the Rescue Rangers fandom, which is so strong. And then it turns out they've got a, they had a couple of things that were just so well regarded, they were very easy to choose. It was a, it's always a pleasure to, like, stumble into a well-established fandom that has 
classic fan works that are considered the cream of the crop. Because it means I don't have to do any more work. I just like get to read <laughs> the super cool thing that they've produced. Yeah. Well, that's great because I think this was a good find and it's not one I would have expected to be like Rescue Rangers. Like I had no idea it had a huge fandom or that this would be around, but I'm glad that it was, you know? I mean, I would have expected gummy bears to just have the, have the staying power. You know, I people tripping all over themselves with gummy bears fan works. I would actually expect that because I love gummy bears. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like gummy bears too. Yeah. Gummy I bears don't know. feels like the midpoint between the Smurfs and the Care Bears in terms of, like, kind of tone and and everything. Yeah, it's probably... I feel like it's more because it has that high fantasy kind of tropiness to it that it's, I don't know, it's like a, almost like Care Bears for slightly older kids. Right, yeah. That's true. It was very... There were a lot more swords in that than in either Smurfs right. or Care Bears. Well, maybe in the future... I'll, I can turn something up for that. But for now, this was episode 102 of Retro Fanfic Retrospective of Mice and Mayhem by... What was his name? Fish. Um, fish. Is that right? That's what and you said before. Certainly <laughs> yeah. uh, the name that's put on some of these things. I think the full name was Chris Fisher. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. But yeah, Fish was apparently his fandom publishing name, at least at that time. You can find it a couple places around the web in variously incomplete forms, but I guess I'll link you to the Russian version that just is missing a few words. Not Russian version, but the version hosted on a Russian website that is missing a few words. At bit.ly slash rfrmayhem. The intro song to the podcast is The Weekly Fair off of the album Popey's Incredible Adventure by Komiku. The outro song is Run Against the Universe from the same album, and you can find that album and other works by Komiku at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. Our podcast is edited by Dom Davis. You can find our website at retrofanficretrospective.podbean.com or bit.ly slash retrofanfic. And if you have questions, comments, or thoughts about the episode, you can contact us on Twitter at retrofanfic, Instagram at retrofanfic, Facebook at retrofanfic, uh, Reddit at fanficretrospective, you can send us an email at retrofanficretrospective at gmail.com. That's a particularly good way of reaching me in particular. And leaving any comments or reviews on the podcast service you use would also be greatly appreciated. I'm Amato. I'm Tori. And I'm Chris. We're just three Earth life forms trying to be nice to each other and to all small mammals. Until next time, take care. Should we be large to nice to large mammals too? Or? I mean, you don't have to try as hard. <laughs> all right, of course. The only large mammals I may be nice to are gummy bears. <laughs>